0: I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Jill Gentile, a psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist in New York City. She is a faculty member at the NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and the author of Feminine Law, Freud Free Speech and the Voice of Desire, with Michael McCrone from Karnak Books. She is an independent practice and contributed a chapter to Rendering Unconscious, the book, entitled Hate Speech, the Price of Mutual Survival, which is adapted from an originally published chapter in her book, Feminine Law. Rendering Unconscious is also a book Rendering Unconscious Psychoanalytic Perspectives Politics and Poetry Available from Trapart Books 2019 Please visit our publisher's website www.trapart.com Dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, p a t r e o n. dot forward slash v a n e s s a two three c a r l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.
1: How did I get into psychoanalysis? Um, Wow, Vanessa, I haven't thought about that in a long time. I think I um, was kind of lost in searching and really found myself interested in personality theory in college. And that led me to be more and more interested in psychology and clinical psychology, which I knew nothing about. Um, yeah. And then I ended up working with res- at a residential treatment center with children, which had a profound impact on my curiosity about uh, child development and play therapy and Limit setting um, and how limits, actually it's relevant to this project that I work on now, but how limits create a space for expression. Um, So I loved that work, and it's interesting. I did that job, a couple of my friends from college and I all applied to this treatment center in New Hampshire, It was an amazing summer, but it really divided. Um, It was very clarifying for people. People either, after that, wanted to pursue a career, kind of working with people, or clearly didn't. Went to law school, went somewhere else. But um, for me, it was very uh, decisive turning point. I still knew nothing about psychoanalysis. Um, But later, once I started graduate training, I think it was, I had a love affair with projective testing loved, loved, loved the the Rorschach in particular. And I happened to do a lot of work with children, very immersive training with Rorschach analysis. Like literally a few, like at least once a week, maybe sometimes more than that. And then we would look at how these evolved over time over the course of play therapy. And I became um, really uh, persuaded that Projective testing uh, had immense value for capturing unconscious dynamics and personality structure that, it, and it opened up so many doors for me. And then over time, the community where I trained was in Rochester, New York, was very, a very self-psychologically rich community. And it was in the 1980s when there were like lots of wars between Kernberg and Kohut. So alliances were formed, we could say splits were formed. Um, but it gave me a grounding for working with severely, again, most of my work back then was with children, very, um, both disenfranchised populations and children at the margins of, uh, psychic inclusion, relational inclusion, um, having a foothold in life. Um, and, and also have personality, then gets disorganized and reorganized, and it was extremely, extremely motivating and rich. So that self-psychological and very also strong Winnicottian background led me to um, be interested in the tensions in psychoanalytic theory between deficit and conflict theory. Um, and how we think about building structure versus dismantling structure. And so those dialectics have been profoundly interesting to me throughout my career because how much I work with a patient to help build psychic structure, only then to help them dismantle it from a to, from a place of greater agency has become, um, I mean, that's a lot of the art of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. So once I was able to then um, take those interests into more of an active interest in the terrain of conflict that led me into the terrain of desire. And I think you and I met through our mutual interest, growing budding interest in Lacanian thought, um, and in what was missing from a lot of contemporary American psychoanalytic discourse. So since then I've been very compelled by um, thinking about psychoanalysis as a discourse of desire, and all of the impediments to a conversation around desire that we see in the consulting room but also in public the public
0: that's so interesting because i didn't know that you uh worked with children and did projective testing i also love projective testing and was completely enthralled with the rorschach both the like uh schaefer kind of more psychoanalytic projective way but also with the whole like Exner system I was like obsessed with that in graduate school and ended up that was like my first teaching was teaching uh, psychological testing specifically projective testing to grad students and then uh, and interns I,
1: I can imagine that being true for you because you've taken such an interest in the uncanny and the um, the, one of the lures of psych, uh, projective testing is to see the way the quanti- quantitative the, actually these kind of transcendent and mystical aspects of the what, of the psyche are also interestingly empirically valid in some way that creates that um, sweet spot between science and art that I think Freud, science and myth-making, science and creativity that Freud ultimately conceded to in, not where he started necessarily, or well, maybe it is where he started, but he you know he had his identity as a scientist and had to conceive that um right truth was a more complicated pursuit it wasn't a phallocentric linear pursuit, so he followed an interesting odyssey also absolutely mm-hmm.
0: yeah. um So how do you see the discourse of desire being played out in the public realm, in
1: society? I see that we have a a big-time problem, as we do in the clinic, but what the clinic offers is uh, a commitment to a relationship and to a style of listening, um, a commitment to... Um, not only speaking, but hearing in a translational process for uh, all of the, not only unspoken desires, but for the resistances to desire. So we are, we have developed techniques. I don't like the word technique, but um, if you look at free association in the literature and what we do in the clinic, we've created a means to enfranchise people into a speaking process, speaking, hearing, listening, that opens a space for desire. And in the public realm, it's sadly the case that um, that conversation's almost completely absent because there is so much polarization in the public realm that it actually, I think what we're seeing is how much resistance there is to desire, um, that we're, we're more comfortable in the language of obligation, demand, control, brute force rhetoric, um, apparently lies, and um, and making up reality in the name of free speech, as opposed to a commitment to the ethic of honesty that was a part of Freud's fundamental rule. Um, that it wasn't just free association say what you want but it was be accountable be honest um, do not censor for the sake of creating noise but do not censor for the sake of speaking uh, candidly what your one is most afraid to speak
0: that's beautifully put yeah and it's like don't don't uh don't censor yourself to maintain this cohesive narrative that you imagine yourself to have or would like to
1: have. <laughs> right, and if the patient is doing is that, the analyst disrupts that space, to that, that conversation for the sake of a less conventional conversation, and to, to begin to make sense of what that patient is so afraid of or protecting the analyst from hearing, as well, and we don't have in the public realm. Ideally, I believe the government might function in, analogously to the therapist. Like there might be figures in the public life that have that function. The press, to some degree, has that function, right? They are their role is to provide a check and balance. Um, that to Right, but to create, help create that triadic space that is at the core of um, democratic functioning, but it's also at the core of psychoanalytic thinking, this idea of a triangular space. And how we cultivate that triangular space is, uh, it, I mean, it's such an elusive space. And I think to the degree that I've studied the free speech literature and the First Amendment literature, it seems to me that um, that goal is not articulated. It's not well articulated that that actually would be a goal of the First Amendment to create an inclusive space and uh, a third space, so that we so that we can begin to translate and interpret and hear each other. In, between the fixity of ideas or the um, absolutist kind of uh, insistence on, and is what, what Thomas Ogden would say, is an, is what it is, reality. It's a huge. It's 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 a very scary time that we're living in. It's an exciting time, but it's we've become so untethered from hearing, truly hearing each other, and listening to desire with. I think, terrible consequences for society.
0: I've been thinking about how interesting it it is that at this moment where we're having this like global crisis with the environment and fascism and everything that at the same time, we're all connected through social media and the Internet uh, in a way that we've never have been before. And so we can all see like this kind of crisis and collapse like in real time, whereas if this happened i don 't know twenty years ago, that wouldn't be the case
1: it's that's fascinating, and the question in part is how much is it because we are so interconnected in an unprecedented way that we've also created this crisis in um I mean there are multiple crises that are intersecting. There's the climate crisis there's um, the crisis in democracy which goes hand in hand with the crisis in free speech Um, there's growing obviously incredible inequality Um, I mean this lead story in the New York Times today about this horrific um, oppression in China of um, you know the Muslim population. It's that before our eyes, even as it's exposed, we're bearing witness to utter brutality and utter division, and, and we seem to stand by so helpless, even when truth is exposed. Um, I think perhaps psychoanalysis could have something to say about this, I, but I think we see some of the same um, problems in psychoanalytic discourse, where we then kind of do retreat to a more authoritarian or to our familiar narratives and or polar, polarized schools of thought. Although much less so than in the past, I think we are really speaking across schools of psychoanalysis now. Um, but I've wondered how much, this is where I think some of, not only the crisis lies, but some of the excitement lies, are we moving towards an unprecedented encounter with what remains elusive and uncanny, really a first time human experience on a global level? And I I know, given your interests, I wonder what you think about that. Is there the possibility that we're approaching something unknowable, So. Heretofore, unknowable and unknown. Um, and we're freaking out as a planet and bringing ourselves to the brink of destruction.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. I hadn't thought about it in that way. <laughs> but it definitely seems like we're having an encounter with the real, that's for sure. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you know, like part of what's interesting about that is. There seems to be—I don't know if it's consensus, or maybe we'd say at the margins of people writing about physics and climate change and and um, materiality in in uh, in psychoanalysis, but in um, in philosophy and and critical theory around what's alive in the real, right? That the real is not inanimate. That this idea of like a panpsychism, is that the word panpsychism? That there's something about a consciousness that eludes us. And do we retreat in psychoanalysis, which would be hopefully the leading edge of an an encounter with what remains unknowable, unnameable, but obviously we all have fear, and we're all um, kind of conjoined in that as well socially, uh, that um, that there's some, it seems to me that there's something perhaps, you know, very, that we're at the, at the cusp of some new terrain of knowledge, and when you look at the, what, Scientists are writing about the anthropos- Anthropocene. Um, what they're really saying is, it's the it's a, for a geological epoch where humans have are agents of geological change in a way that has never happened before, and that opens up a space for our responsibility as agents in a way that we've not yet had to bear responsibility for and it's, it's I mean it's just really interesting to think about and how that relates to psychoanalytic notions of the depressive position and reparative gestures and like, what have we not really understood about that and then about the return of the repressed or what or what's uncanny that we still can't be so I'm, I'm curious about all of that um and but but very um, distressed, of course, because we've become unhinged in so many ways as a society from familiar signposts of what we took for granted even five years ago. So,
0: Yeah, that's true. And I've been thinking a lot about um, like ancestor veneration and trans- transgenerational transmission of trauma, And, you know, since I work with a lot of people who are more like shamanic practitioners or people in Santeria and Kimbanda and Voodoo and those sorts of things, uh, everybody has these practices of ancestor veneration where they, um, you know, talk to their ancestors, try to connect, connect to their roots, connect to the land. And I've been thinking about how similar that is to like, uh, you know, the psychoanalytic ideas of transgenerational transmission of trauma and like working back through like, you might be holding traumas and patterns of your parents or your grandparents or even further back and how that can be reparative in some way.
1: It it calls to mind for me, I mean some of my work on the feminine and how we we retreat from the female body into the, the body that gave us birth and our own heritage is in that maternal body. And recently I've been reading a lot of Julia Kristeva's work, and her accent on the maternal I think is often uh, complicated and um, I think unfortunately by some dismissed as kind of an essentialist project, which it's not my reading of her. I think she's very tuned into um, kind of, you know, on places emphasis, emphasis on the signifier and the symbolic, but she's really calling about, the calling attention to the energies of the maternal body, and that we, in if we try to disclaim that, we lose so much of what is alive and transformative and, in, and the life of the drive, and it's there's so much potential in uh, being not only the maternal body, but the feminine body, because the feminine then becomes the uh, problematic, but um, I think conduit um, potentiality for what you can't control and can't capture and can't... Gatekeep and um, that will all utterly elude phallos, phallocentric control, and I think that is, um, you know, part. Of We're at a point in society where there's this, you know, white man, the white male, the the plight of white supremacy and uh, like those last gasps of control and trying to gatekeep the female body, and migration, and every border crossing, and and yet it's, it's a futile quest ultimately, because you can only lock so many bodies up, and you can only restrict so many births, and so many options for women, and this has always been what the problematic democracy because all democracies always try to both be democratic and leave certain members of society disenfranchised. So it's we've never actually witnessed a genuine democracy because they're always based on exclusions. And yet the feminine I believe can't be excluded. I think it has something that disrupt is disruptive, un uncontrollable, unpredictable and will always resist. And so that has um, the following that energy is going to guide us.
0: Well, that sounds like we should talk about your book, then. Oh, okay. Feminine Law, Freud, Free Speech and the Voice of Desire. How did it come about that you decided to create this wonderful book?
1: Oh, thank you so much. Well, we've already been talking about it to some degree because these are the themes. Um, uh, well, so I was interested in the problem of agency and how patients, in our, you know, I, the, one of the ways I talk about this is that it became clear to me through my work with people in the clinic that our patients right they come in they they have one symptom or another symptom or another symptom and i used to think oh what is this person's issue what is this person's issue what is that for? and then i realized that's sort of irrelevant what's relevant is are they able to speak uh, desire and how can psychoanalysis contribute to helping people claim a sense of agency and ownership of their body, of their desire, of their intentionality? And how can I use myself towards that end? And the more I became interested in that, the more I became interested in the literature and semiotics, because I started to realize I was training my ear to listen for desire and um, the signifiers of desire. And so... That's what I was writing about and interested in. Um, And somewhere along that odyssey, I began to think about what does it mean to use the analyst as the means for enfranchising the patient in their own discourse, their own discourse of desire, and which, always as as well enfranchising them in a relationship. And if that project always means dismantling the hierarchy between analyst and patient for the sake of an inclusive relationship, then the analyst needs to forego their privilege in some very real and uncomfortable ways. Now that's become almost commonplace since post-Trump, like in our era now we talk a lot about checking your privilege. But I think that that project and analysis is, still has a ways to go to become more articulated how we might do that for the sake of our patients, because I think what started to happen, at least in the relational world, was this um, idea that we were creating equality as if we could from the get go. But like one of the interesting counterpoints in Lacanian thought is the analyst holds themselves, right, as the subject's supposed to know for the sake of the patient's dismantling. And yet, I don't know that Lacanian thinking goes as far as some in relational thinking go to, to really dismantle that authority and reveal the subject behind the, the veil um, so that two people can come into being in presence in a way that's mutually knowable okay ever partially because we're only ever partially knowable to each other and it's, it's a fluid, never reified process but and can never be totalized but but still a partial process of mutual knowing and exploration and intimacy and that happens in psychoanalysis between body and mind right and that's for, for its brilliance around languaging the body, bringing the body you know the subject of drive, becomes a subject of language, a subject of desire. So I so the more anyway, the more I was thinking about democracy, psychoanalysis, dismantling hierarchy, creating an inclusive relationship of equality through the practice of free association and speech, the more I felt like, wow, I psychoanalysis is a theory of democracy. Why are, why why is that not being written about? And, I mean, this is before Donald Trump, right? I was working on this book uh, several years before 2016. Um, So it began, so then I started to think, well, how can we contribute to, how can we look at this parallel, if there is a parallel or an analogy between the First Amendment and uh, free speech? And again, being captured by the idea that the First Amendment is our First Amendment in U.S. constitutional democracy, and um, that the fundamental rule in psychoanalysis is free association. And then I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting, right, that they're both acknowledging the primacy of speech and freedom of thought and speech. Um, The... The first, they're both very parsimonious rules. Uh, There's very little. There's like the First Amendment's only forty-five words, and Freed actually said very, very little about free association throughout his entire body of work. Um, But the um, it opened this doorway for me to begin to examine how. The moment the founders, whether it's the founder of psychoanalysis or the founding or framers of, of the US Constitution, both were establishing their fundamental rules as a response to tyranny, right? The, re, the rebuke of a certain kind of repressed, psychical repression. Um, and yet, despite their rules, they both ended up recreating systems of repression or right, for needed to still create systems of dominance and control over his acolytes and followers. Um, and the founding fathers we know, and it's been now extremely exposed about how we essentially, in the name of revolution, actually created this elitist oligarchy that excluded slaves and women. So at the more he dialed into this, the more I became like curious about these exclusions that preclude the fulfillment of democracy, which then gets a bad name because of its alliance with capitalism, even though that is capitalism. That's not really what the project of democracy is. If democracy, if it were to be fulfilled, would be a radical project of socialism and inclusion of all voices on equal. Footing, despite obviously the fact that we all have individual differences and are, have singular talents and and liabilities. So, in any event, it, it, it the the recurring theme of exclusion led me to the exclusion of the female body, which was founded in the Greek democracy, in American democracy, and certainly in psychoanalysis in its theory and practice around the female body, which was completely ironic, since it was the female body that informed the origins of psychoanalysis. So how did it then become so utterly degraded? And specifically, how did the female genital become so degraded and silenced? And what does that mean for a robust free speech economy, especially because we know psychoanalysis proceeded to privilege the phallus? And that, I hadn't expected to get into that. But once I got into that, I felt like it was an inescapable problem that I needed to sort of try to take on. Because at the heart of, um, if, if we understand psychoanalysis as a study of signs and symbols, as basically as a semiotic mission, then we need to explore the fact that we've been somehow comfortable with an ongoing commitment to a phallocentric theory, and every time there's um, resistance, feminist resistance, um, it, there's a brief period of kind of acknowledging the resistance, and you could look at Karen Hornei or um, Eric, Eric Gray all of the exciting interesting powerful interventions that have been made um, contra the phallocentric phallocratic um uh, discourse of psychoanalysis and then we then we see that we play in democracy and so it so the question of what is eclipsed or occluded becomes even more interesting and So that led to my focusing on um, how the female genital functions as a limit of speech and then this literature that points to the silence and speech in the clinic when the patient says, I have nothing to say, I have no thoughts, how silence itself points to the word nothing and a nothing that when then pressed further, the annalizant seems to associate to the female body, to the female genital body. Um, And there is a convergence of literature that points to this, and then that literature gets silenced also. Um, Now, we have a very active interest in Lacanian thought around the nothing, around the void, around the veil, over the void. Um, We have in relational literature, all kinds of efforts to point to different metaphors for space, spatial metaphors, and I started to recognize these spatial metaphors and these um, the call for the primacy of the void as the gateway to the feminine. But that if we were to name the vaginal, the, the counterpoint to the phallus, we would. We would, open a, we would open a space for naming the gap, which then enables us to listen for the gap in a new way and actually to keep our eye on the gap. Because you know when we, in Free Association for it instructed us to listen for the gap, but we, we're all the time actually, so many of us when we're actually doing clinical work listen to the content as opposed to the gap. The space between the interval, the interval of what's said and unsaid Um, You know, some people have argued that if we name the female genital, then we close down that space, but I think that's um, misguided. I think that the the more we name, the closer we get to what remains unnameable, and what we really want to get to are the novel disruptive energies of the real. But if we're always afraid to name the feminine, we lose... And other people have have charged, have said to me, look, you're just recreating a binary. And um, I guess my argument back in part is, well, do you prefer a monopoly? If we have a phallocentric, then we actually, that's what creates the binary, because then we create hegemony. We create the haves and the have-nots. We create a polarized world, which we see play out in the culture, that excises the female, excises the migrant, excises the refugee, the bodies that we don't want to acknowledge and name and know, um, and we lose so much robustness, and we, we lose the space of difference, and difference is, is where the excitement lies, that's where um, something new emerges.
0: Yeah, and I also love that this uh, thing that we will not name, that is the female genital, is uh, where we come from. It's our origin,
1: you know? Which I think Freud would say is, I mean, if he were alive to analyze himself further, he might say, because he knew, you know, he didn't completely shut down the feminine. He he did two things. He, he both degraded it and privileged the feminine, in some sense, as being beyond his patriarchal, a capacity to make meaning of because he would have needed sur- to surrender to what I call feminine mm-hmm. law. Um, so I actually think, you know, I, the way I understand the First Amendment and the way I understand his rules of free speech, um, his uh, technical guidance on free association and the fundamental rule is I see them as spaces that enshrine a certain amb- ambiguity so they're they're interestingly, kind of creating contours for space and for inclusivity, but they're not totemic. They're not um, inscribed by man. They're not prohibitive laws. They're not symbolic laws. They're not totemic laws. But they are laws that are, if you surrender to the to the real, we could say they're laws rooted in nature that. Create um, a tension between the lawful, right symbolic, and the lawless, real. We don't want just lawlessness, so we don't want just order and control. We want a tension between lawful and lawless, for and that's where I think the voice of desire comes in and unconscious agency. Unco- well, unconscious elements that uh, vivify, right? They disrupt and they animate public life but it does mean an encounter with the uncanny real of the, of, the, of, of our birthplace um, you know I have a piece I don't know if you've read it I have a piece on um, birtherism on Trump's birtherism line mm. and so that obviously that was written after the 2016 election which, was after the publication of this book, but it gave me an opportunity to take a look at the Trump campaign and Hillary Clinton's uh, the way she was portrayed, and especially by Trump, in the context of this retreat from the feminine and inability to claim the vaginal sy- symbolic, uh, which. The wonderful thing to meet my mind about the the female genital, if I will say that, is that if you symbolize it, it both gains parity with the phallus by being visible and named, but but it sort of names something that's unassimilable, right? That resists assimilation and symbolization, so it retains this. Uh, it retains its own uncanniness, as being both of the symbolic order and fundamentally resistant to it in other. Um, which is part of why I think naming it becomes so interesting for us. So, um, so so here's Trump, right? All of his rhetoric is about border controls and walls and right, climate denialism, and he's like preoccupied with Hillary going to the bathroom and he's preoccupied with what was her name the journalist and Megan Kelly and is she bleeding and and he it's, it's his his speech is um ripe with associations to the female genital and the female body which of course then he brings on pence and he's all about let's let's control of the, fem- the, um, the, the body but he introduces his campaign with this absurd eartherist lie everyone knows this is a lie um, but why did it gain so much traction and why was it so resistant to journalists efforts to expose it as a lie um, Where the lie being where was Obama born so what I argue is that Obama was born exactly where Donald Trump was born, because it was the home, the birthplace for all of us, which is the, the female body, and the female womb and genital. Ca- uh, cavity, and I think this kind of truth, that we we all share a common heritage, um, disrupts the idea, the ethno-nationalist idea of. of you know, nations and their borders, and control and privilege, because we all are joined in others, and and it speaks to why I think towards the end of all of the major theorists, Lacan, Winnicott, of course Freud, um, uh, there is this, and and then we leave out the major feminist theorists, Klein and Kristeva. Benjamin, um, that there's this uh, recognition of um, the revulsion of the female body, this fear of the feminine, of the feminine power of the female genital. And there's a, you know, maybe we should just look at how that plays out across each of these texts. but it's fundamentally a problem of control, and it's the real um, it, the dictator. You know, Winnicott writes about the dictator's need to um, repudiate the originary helplessness or dependence on the on the feminine and the female. So. I think we need to keep investigating that. So birtherism, right in the word, is the word birth. And the whole preoccupation with where was Obama born may, be, may have been reread as a preoccupation with uh, this other sub, subterranean, te- it was a text that journalists never wrote. They never wrote the story of the female body as the birthplace that actually joined Obama and um, Trump, and of course that then also speaks to the autonomy of a woman who chooses to have birth, have sex with a black man, that her body can be invaginated by her desi- a, a man of her desire, that it's not up to, it's not necessarily about white hegemony um, and supremacy. So that was completely dismantling, but the female body also grants us in reality, in truth, because we can we can make up any birth stories we wa- we want, but in reality there is there is some biological reality to this, and um, I think our dismantled free speech. Discourse today, the fact that we're so dislocated from truth has to do with the feminine. It's a complicated argument to make, but I think it all kind of—you know—I know know psychoanalysts are kind of conspiracy-minded, but I do think all of this is connected.
0: It makes sense to me. And what do you think about journalists now, like uh, having this idea that they have to tell like all sides of the story, even if? Some of the sides of the story might not be hundred percent uh rational. <laughs> I don't know what the word is. That's the worst word to choose for that. But it's like the idea like for like I don't, oh this this new law they just passed in Ohio where like a child's allowed to say like wrong scientific information in their paper if it's in line with their religion or something like people can believe the earth is like 6000 years old or whatever when we all know that it's not but like why would a journalist have to report that point of view when it's it's just not true i didn't know about that law
1: and yet it really speaks to how dismantled everything we took near and dear Um, at least in terms of um, a certain kind of discourse around reality and truth-telling and ultimately morality has become so dismantled and dislodged. There's so many components of it because right? if we're working on dismantling hierarchy and privilege, I think what somehow that has fed into this dismantling of expertise and knowledge and it's a porous line unfortunately that has become um, and it, 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 I mean it shouldn't be I don't know that it, it, it needs to be quite so porous there I think we can challenge uh, people's creations of um, falsity and hopefully for the sake of education we need to in the clinic, if our patient says, I can make up any reality I want, and I should be able to get an A because I'm as entitled to you as my narrative or my version of reality, we'd probably say something like, That's a nice fantasy. Like that we all have a fantasy that we can make up our own, that our truth is is that is true because we dare to claim it. Um, and that's a little different than being accountable to the ethic that Freud had in his commitment to free association of an ethic of honesty. Um, so, but I think what we're seeing is something about when we fail to provide um, that ethical space for speech which is a triangular space accountable to something beyond the dyad beyond the magic of, right then we when we fail to do that we're left in the world of magical thinking and omnipotence and omnipotence is not um, is a very precarious position for us to um, try to we certainly can't Privileged democracy for privileging omnip- omnipotence, because omnipotence, by definition, is a sort of solipsistic, uh, 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 right? That's a condition of, of, of solipsism. And so we're seeing a crisis of solipsism in omnipotence, um, and therefore a problem of truth. And somehow now we have laws that are um, not functioning to honor, to create a lawful space, but actually to collapse this and privilege uh, this disenfranchised kind of discourse. It's,
0: yeah. It's really tricky because it's like, uh, you know, clearly we want people to have freedom of religion and freedom of thought and for different worldviews to be, you know, coexisting but then it's like manipulated into these rules of like well my religion doesn't want to bake a cake for this gay person or (laughs) my religion says this woman you know I can control this woman's body so it's like these 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 ideas that were initially seeming to be something that would allow for more openness and possibility and speech end up like foreclosing other people's options um it also reminds yeah. me what you're talking about of um, that great talk that Steven Reisner gave at the New School about Trump, the crazy like a fox, uh, I guess it was 2017, when uh, everyone was saying that Trump was you know, mentally ill or whatever, and, 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 he, and he was like, well, is it someone's mental illness or psychosis if he's able to create a reality in which we all have to live in
1: it? You know? <laughs> What is that? <laughs> uh, what is that? How, and and has that that what's going on now with these impeachment hearings is unprecedented. If you listen to the opening, the opening gambit, um, where Nunes basically, instead of signing on to, okay, this is a valid inquiry, it's become so politicized right from the get-go, and it's just. A microphone for Trump to to um, delegitimize every institutional process we have to preserve democracy. So we have create we have now really we are all players in Trump's and it, it's not just Trump, but the this, everything that's followed. But it's beyond so beyond Trump because it's happening worldwide in terms of the retreat which Freud warned us about, the retreat from knowledge, the retreat to authoritarianism because of the fear of claiming agency for our own desires. And what does it mean? Why are we so, so scared of knowing ourselves and knowing each other? What does alterity mean? What does, um, what's the forbidden desire that's so, so so frightening. But we'd rather do this to ourselves. Um, we may destroy ourselves in the process, and and then that leads on to questions of how how can we help um, a society that's so that's been so beaten down and has so much um, bitterness and resentment. Uh, to regain any kind of self-respect and capacity to feel heard, um, wanted, and and potent. And again, this is something psychoanalysis ideally knows something about, about potency and how we help people find their uh, power. But that's it's such a long journey because we need... We need really inclusive spaces for not only free speech but for hate speech, for hearing quite violent forms of speech that are aimed to eradicate another person's reality and subjectivity and very physical aliveness. Right. So, um, we well, that hope. brings that brings to
0: mind your the chapter that you contributed to, "Rendering Unconscious," the book. That was pulled from your your book, and it's hate speech. The price of mutual survival.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for including that chapter in your your book. I've loved how creative and um, how inclusive that book is. That's a, that's quite a tribute to dem- democratic psychoanalytic thinking, um, because you're very inclusive in the voices you bring together and the kinds of writing you bring together, which is so exciting. Um, I, um, so I, I did turn to trying to address the problem of hate speech because psycho- psychoanalysts regularly contend with hate speech in their practices, right? We, we don't call it hate speech. But we regularly contend with patients chipping away at the progress of the analysis, um, the their resentments that they bring to us, because of their own status as victim, what ex- experienced experiences as victims and or um, people who have not had their piece of the pie in terms of a feeling of inclusion and fairness. And so those resentments come into the treatment room. and they're often class-based, racially based, um, gender-based, And the analyst needs to bear some responsibility for their participation now as the analyst in recreating those hierarchies and bearing the price of those resentments, which is part of why our work is so, so hard and why we all need mutual support because we process so much hate in the clinic. Um, And if we're open and alive to it, our bodies really feel the impact of that. So, um, and our patients need us for their own survival to bear some responsibility for that and some capacity to translate that hate so that we can open a space for desire and ultimately love. But you know, I hear I take a lot from Winnicott that Winnicott set a very high bar for how much the mother and the analyst needs to endure a certain kind of hate. Um, and that. So this is why I'm not a fan of efforts to censor hate speech or, um, you know, the, a lot of these signs and in the context of the Trump campaign and since hate has no home here, I find it alienating because hate needs to be welcomed. We can't just right, repudiate hate, we all are capable of hate, we all have hateful capacity. So I think we need to be able to welcome hate, which is a kind of odd thing to say, but we need to welcome it not to have it, um, not to reinstate a dynamic of being, of hate and being hated, but for the sake of, um, translating that hate um, so that the infant, whether it's the infant who needs the mother to endure her hate so that the infant can come alive as a subject. um, Or if you look at Winnicott's object usage paper where the mother is destroyed, this mother is mother is destroyed for the sake, though, of mother coming into being as a separate subject with her own desire so that infant can then discover mother and they can have a life beyond hate, beyond imprisonment, um, where two subjects come into being with a life of desire. And then we're into a democratic discourse of desire where um, it's much more animating and alive. Um, But I think it's necessary, and this is a, a public service we might provide, which is to say, um, to the public we need spaces for hearing hatred not just um, silencing it or um, hating the other person for being so hateful or racist or this or that um but for for trying to hear it so we can translate it and um, you know if trump were trump has aroused so much hate like both a, a, like a uh, in the on the part of those who can't stand Trump, his political opponents, but also in his rallies, those who are Trump supporters, the freedom to hate. So we could say this is a legitimate human need that he's helped to um, bring into public awareness, but it would be so different if his own speech were accountable to um, to it would be a very different thing to say we have a responsibility to help people with their hate and that that's a totally legitimate human need in terms of to become a fully enfranchised human being Um, so but obviously that's not what he does which then speaks to how we might think about imposing limits on the leader, the speech of a leader, which again we have in psychoanalysis the psychoanalyst like does not have does not have the right, the ethical right to just say whatever they want. So, well,
0: I think that we all thought that the leader did have limits to what they could say, because <laughs> um, there's just always been kind of implicit guidelines, and uh, you know they read from speeches, you know, that are written ahead of time that people check and fact check, you know, usually. So, we've seen that kind of blown into smithereens.
1: Yeah, we have a lot to learn. We've been quite solipsistic ourselves. And uh, though, again, given the recent political rhetoric, it seems that we had some commitments in place. We never had had that commitment to the the same commitment to health care that Sweden has, um, or to you know, pre-K, universal pre-K or kindergarten, but um, what is stunning is how quickly so much has been dismantled, whether it's clean air, clean water, um, basic safeguards in terms of human rights, uh, the freedom of the press to function without retaliation and defamation, you know, the idea that, journalists will be charged with libel or if they do so the increased fear that's now in society in america um is very startling and it may be that we need many more mass protests i think we need bodies in the streets um and it is a bit concerning that we're not all out in the streets even like now these impeachment hearings have started and So part of the question of, are we still too comfortable and what will it take to further release the energies and and bring collective bodies together and collective voices together? Um, I mean, psychoanalysis is very committed to the individual voice, but really we need that bridging function with the collective voice of desire to confront uh, the toxic um, dismantling of the institutions that might um, function as um, basic preservatives and conduits to human enfranch- you know, enfranchisement. Should we
0: stop with that? When is everyone going to go out in the streets? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've been wondering.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I think we're all a little bit still too comfortable, which is a scary thing to say. It's scary to think that, but, you know, I'm kind of happy working on writing and not being out in the streets, but meaning we all have sacrifices to make if we're going to be out in the streets. Mm. Yeah. That's a lot to bear, but the cost is very high. And it also, you know, there's also a question of what um, has this world, has, have we been too comfortable expropriating violence and conflict, like the real fights, right, to a certain segment of the population who go off to war and fight battles on supposedly on behalf of saving democracy, but really for other... Often for other nefarious goals. Um, and, and is this part of the price of having, again, created uh, privilege and exclusion that we, we don't fight these battles? We need to, right? Every patient needs to fight this battle. Every patient and analyst need to fight the battle together for the sake of their relationship. Um, but if we Gave up being vigilant, but also recognizing how fundamental for each generation it is to claim voice and fight these battles. We we have a very messy situation. Anyway, thank you, Vanessa, so much. I could go on and on and on, and it's so pleasurable. That's great.
0: Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Dr. Jill Gentile, a psychologist and psychoanalyst in New York City. For links to her book, Feminine Law, Freud, Free Speech, and the Voice of Desire, and her contribution to the book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and poetry, please see the text accompanying this episode. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, available from Tripart Books, 2019. Please visit our publisher's website, www.trapart.net You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, patreon.com/forward/slash/vanessa23. C-A-R-L Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can visit my website, Sinclair.net or visit the podcast website, renderingunconscious.org Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. I had to drink up all the water in my carafe and was still thirsty. Towards morning, I slept and was wakened by the continuous knocking at my door. So I guess I must have been sleeping. Need context. And that context is the three shadow arts. Shadow play, strategies, and ritual. How then can sorcerers whose art is precise uniting with one's own inner opposite? I use intimacy, love, and sex. I consider my work to be buckle of Isis. Picking up on one is atoms and obsessional ideas. The conflict now stands out clearly. On the one hand, the dream belongs wholly to sleep. On the other hand, the to make these principles of limit clear at the outset, for they are as much a description of scope and method as they are statement of faith. First, no matter how far up or down we go in the psyche, science and theology for their psychic premises. So the tradition of depth psychology is to stay at home and to create its own ground as it proceeds. This ground, psychodynamics, psychotherapy, psychopathology, is surely well trodden by endeavor to explore and disclose is possible only within the classic confines of the old, the known, and the limited. New pleasure to watch You looked like a newly married couple. He smiles at Severine. Severine, rather aggressive? I suppose we looked a bit ridiculous. Oh no, it looked very beautiful. Reassuring.